Well, we are in our last message in First Peter for now, and then we're going to take a sort of winter break in the uh, season of Advent through December. We'll be working our way through one chapter of one book, and that's the first chapter of John. We're going to take that apart and look at it. We're not even going to go through the entire first chapter of John. We're going to take four chunks and unpack that to talk about the meaning and the import of Christmas. But today, we are in uh, our continued series and through First Peter. And this passage today, many scholars, m- many pastors, maybe I, I want to say most pastors, it's hard to think of pastors who wouldn't consider this the most, if not one of the most, confusing passages in the Bible. So this is going to be fun, (laughs) I hope. (laughs) If you're a note taker, uh, you know, sharpen the pencil, uh, do what you need to do to get ready. If you take notes with your thumbs, do some stretches, because this is going to be interesting. In fact, it it gets so enigmatic and and kind of complex that one of the passages we're going to go to to help us understand this passage is maybe the second most confusing passage in the Bible. And so we have several texts here that uh, are disagreed uh, upon. People have different opinions on what they mean and what it means. Um, And what I don't want to see happen today is for us to be hiking this trail through the forest And we go, man, what kind of trees are these anyway? I mean, it's important to understand where we are and get the lay of the land. And so we get off trail a little bit, which is fine, you know, because we're investigating. But as we keep investigating, eventually we start asking, wait, where are we going again? And we kind of lost the trail back there somewhere. We don't don't want that. So we don't want to just stick to the trail and pretend there are no trees. There is no nature. There's nothing surrounding, nothing helping us understand the hike. No, this all stuff is helping us understand our journey. Let's look at it, investigate it. Let's just not get lost in it and miss the thread that Peter has for us in this epistle. That's the plan. That's my goal. Uh, Hopefully we stick to that. Uh, But we will have to get off trail a little bit just to try to understand what Peter is trying to do here by introducing these uh, strange texts. Uh, Some of you I've talked to already in person, maybe in growth group and other places. You sometimes get the sense when you're reading an ancient letter like this, that the people had a better idea of what he was talking about than we do, because we're like begging him for footnotes. We're begging him for an explanation, like, wait, what? And he doesn't explain, maybe because it's, it's something that they commonly understand a little bit more. So that's something we're going to keep in mind as we look at this passage. And that is 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, and for most of our Bibles, it's the last full paragraph of this chapter. I'm going to read the entire paragraph, verses 18 to 22, and I'm going to dive in while I look at the clock, because we could be here for a long time (laughs) if we pick apart everything, okay? All right. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, 
in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. It's good stuff. Let's start at the top. For Christ also suffered when you see a sentence like that, nobody starts talking like that, right? You call someone, they pick up, hello, and you go, for the other day I also did this. It's mid-thought, right? That doesn't make any sense. Uh, clearly, they were attaching what they're going to say to something else. For is an attachment word. I'm telling you all this for this reason. When he says also, what do you mean also? Because he's connecting it to what he just finished talking about. So let's keep in mind what he just finished talking about. What Mark preached on last week. And essentially what we've been looking at the entire first three chapters of this epistle. Peter is talking to an embattled, discouraged, uh, beat up group of Christians. Scattered throughout what is now modern day Turkey. And they're experiencing uh, an increased persecution. They're discouraged. They're distraught. They maybe are tempted to give up, you know, lose hope. And Peter is trying to encourage them because God has secured such a great salvation for you according to his great mercy. This inheritance that's waiting for you, this faith that's been given to you, guarded by God himself. No one can take this inheritance. This inheritance is not perishable. This inheritance is not going to rust or fade or be destroyed. It's kept in heaven for you. So no matter what they do to you here on earth, you don't belong here in the first place. You're a citizens of you're citizens of some place better. And if you cling to that hope, you can endure anything this world throws at you. That's the trail. That's the the path that Peter's carving for their faith and their theology. So that's what we don't want to lose sight of, that message. When he says in verse 18, for Christ also suffered for sins, He's connecting it. He's saying, hey, guys, suffering is not weird. You're followers of Christ. Christ suffered. It makes sense that you're going to suffer. But look what happened to Christ. He was exalted. And he was uh, made king and, and victor over all principalities and authorities and powers. And you're with him. You guys are the good guys. I know you're minorities and it hurts right now. You're under a lot of pressure from the world. But suffered too. And if you're going to follow his path, that's what it's going to take you don't grow up in a house where your dad is let's say a firefighter i want to be a firefighter when i grow up and then finally you grow up and they're like okay go to firefighting school and here's a gas mask and here's what it's like and no no no, no. i don't want to actually go into fires i don't want to go do the training heavy equipment and lugging stuff around you know i just kind of want to lounge with the fire guys and like play chess and stuff i want to slide down that pole do you have one of those poles no, you don't get to say, I want to follow Christ and I want to sit in church and I want to sing songs and stuff. But, you know, when it gets difficult, I don't want to like stick up for him. He's saying, this is what it's like, guys. This is what you've been called to, to suffer for Christ. And it doesn't mean God is punishing you. It's the opposite. It means God's got something awesome in store for you. 
It's a badge of honor to suffer for Christ because it's what it means to be a Christ follower. It's what it means to have an inheritance waiting for us somewhere else and not building up an estate here that we want to cling to and protect. So that's the context. That's where he's going. That's where he's coming from. He says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. It baffles me when pastors don't believe the substitutionary atonement. It was substitutionary. The righteous died in place of the unrighteous. And so Jesus was a substitute for us in his death and his resurrection. Why did he do that? That he might bring us to God. So the first verse starts off very simple. Jesus Christ, he was the righteous one. He died for the unrighteous so that he can take the unrighteous and bring them back into a relationship with God. Being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. Okay, here's our first awkward turn. If you're reading the ESV, it says put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit, small s. If you're reading the NIV, the New International Version, for example, it says that Jesus was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit, Big S. Anybody have the NIV in front of them right now? Okay. I know some of you read the NIV. New King James has a capital S. Good. So you see how the translations are going to vary on this. Uh, they didn't use capitals the way that we use them in English. They didn't use, do that in Koine Greek. So you have to guess when spirit means small s, everyone has a spirit, or big S, the spirit, the Holy Spirit. And you have to tell from the context. Now, normally the context makes it pretty clear which one they're talking about. But in this case, obviously, they differ. That's why if you're reading the NIV or the NKJV, you have the big S, spirit. They're saying the Holy Spirit or small s, spirit. In this instance, I take sides with the NIV, with the NKJV. I'm going to explain why. If you read that passage and it says Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but then he became alive spiritually, that, that doesn't really sound like the gospel we get everywhere else, right? What do we get everywhere else? That he was put to death physically and he came alive physically. It was an empty tomb. It wasn't a body laying in the tomb, but his spirit is alive. Well, thank God his spirit is alive. Everybody's spirit is alive after they die. There's nothing special about that. What he's saying is that Jesus was put to death in the flesh. He came and took on flesh and was put to death, but he came alive by power of the Holy Spirit. How else do we know that? You might jot these down. You can look at it later. 1 Timothy 3.16. 1 Timothy 3.16 said Jesus was uh, manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Holy Spirit. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Holy Spirit. Same formula. Romans 1, 3 and 4. Jesus descended from David. This is Romans 1, 3 to 4. Jesus descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of Holiness capital S, which is clear in that context, by his resurrection from the dead. In other words, he came in the flesh according to the line of David, but he was made alive according to the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 11 also talks about how did, Jesus, how, how did Jesus rise from the dead? The Holy Spirit did it. The Holy Spirit did it. The Holy Spirit brought Jesus back from the dead. That is clear, Romans eight eleven. So when you read passages like that and you come to Peter, it just makes sense. Jesus was put to death physically. He was put to death by human hands because he was human, but he was brought to life by the Holy Spirit. 
So in my opinion, that one's a little bit easy to clear up because it keeps the gospel intact and it makes sense to say that Jesus was made alive by the Spirit rather than he was dead spiritually, then made alive spiritually. If he was dead spiritually, that means he sinned. Jesus didn't sin. That means he wasn't dead spiritually, so he couldn't be made alive spiritually. Okay? Now, the good stuff. It says that he was put to death in the flesh and made alive in the Spirit, capital S. Verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. What spirits? What prison? Those are the questions that should be popping up in your head because this is foreign territory for us. Not obey. Who's they? When, when formally? When God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Noah? Where is this coming? We were talking about Jesus. He died and was made alive and suddenly is he, is he being transported back in time to talk to people in Noah's day? Is he, well, he was there? Like, how does this connect? So it is easy to see how this is very confusing. While the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water, baptism. He starts talking about baptism, verse 21. What is going on? Maybe Peter was having a late night. Sometimes I go back through my, uh, through my notes in seminary and I see where I'm, I have good handwriting. The handwriting starts getting sloppy and then it goes off the page. That's where I was falling asleep. And the sentence leading up to that drop-off makes no sense, right? Because I'm half asleep. What's going on, Peter? No, he wasn't half asleep. This is a case where I think he's assuming his audience knows a little bit more than probably we do so far removed. That doesn't mean it's impossible for us to access what he means. It just means we have to do a little bit more work. There's a few different interpretations to this. The first is that Christ preached through Noah via the Holy Spirit back in the day. So not that Jesus died in the tomb and that while he was in the tomb, in his spirit, he went back in time or something like that, or that he went down into some you know, subterranean region where spirits are kept. But no, that he's just saying, remember the story of Noah? And we know that Noah, while he was preparing the ark, he preached. Noah preached to people. Noah explained to people what was coming and that God was a God of wrath, but he's also a God of mercy and there's a way out. But people didn't listen to Noah. You remember that? Well, that was Jesus preaching through Noah, through the Holy Spirit. Theologically, I think that makes sense. We already learned from Peter that all the prophets of old were prophesying about Christ. That was the Spirit of Christ in them that pointed to the prophecies. So I think theologically that makes sense. That's probably the, one of the best views out there. But some other views, and these are some that you've probably heard of. Some people say that these spirits that Jesus is preaching to here, they're imprisoned spirits who died in the flood. Jesus died, and what's going on between when Jesus died and when he rose again? There's three days there. What happened during those three days? So people go to this text and they go, I know what was happening. Peter's telling us that he went to this prison and he preached to people that died in the flood and he's giving them the gospel so they can get a second chance. The problem with that is there's, there's no scriptural evidence whatsoever that anybody gets a second chance after you die. You live one life, you die once, and after that first death, you face judgment. 
And that judgment determines whether you suffer an eternal death or an eternal life after that. There's so many scripture passages pointing to that. It can't be that Jesus goes to give a second chance to the people in the flood. And why do they get a second chance? And the people that died in Sodom and Gomorrah don't get a second chance. They're both evil. Why, do they, why don't they get a second chance? How come, people, how come the worst people that we read about in the Bible get a second chance? And some people that weren't as bad, they're not getting a second chance. It, it just doesn't make any sense trying to connect that to the rest of Scripture. Some people said that in between Jesus' death and his resurrection, in that interval time, what Jesus was doing was he went to a prison of some sort, a holding place, where all the Old Testament saints are being held. And because they didn't have the gospel and Jesus hasn't risen yet, they needed the gospel so that they can now be brought to heaven. So they're like in this holding place because Jesus hasn't died yet. And so Jesus goes and preaches to those Old Testament saints, rescue them and liberate them and bring them. The reason why that doesn't make sense, guys, is because A, while he's preaching to them, he still hasn't resurrected yet. It's the in-between time from his death, and Satan's throwing a big party. Woohoo! he's dead. He hasn't raised yet, right? Satan makes real sure that a, a Roman guard is dispatched to protect that tomb, and everything's set up, man, for this dark victory. Well, Jesus is proclaiming a half gospel down there because of the full gospel that Jesus rose again, and he hasn't risen yet because he's down in some subterranean region preaching in Abraham's bosom or something like that, whatever you want to call this little holding place, right? The other reason why it doesn't make sense is because it says that he preached to the spirits who disobeyed in the days of Noah. A, it's the people that disobeyed, not the people that are held for salvation. B, it's only the people that disobeyed in Noah's day and not any other day. That doesn't make any sense. That while Jesus is dead, but before he rose again, he's going to go to some weird place where a specific spiritual prison where people are kept only from Noah's day and preach them a gospel. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't jive with the rest of Scripture. So this next view that I want to point out to you at first, I'm sure is going to strike you as odd because it did with me as well. And as I read and thought and prayed, it started to make a little bit more sense to me. But you guys don't have the time that I have. Well, you, you know, I want you to keep reading and thinking and talking to your growth groups about this. But when he says uh, he was made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed, because we're saying he was made alive in the capital S spirit, we're not asking the question, where did Jesus' spirit go? Peter's not talking about where is Jesus' spirit going. We ask that. He's not asking that question. What happened to Jesus while he was in the tomb? He's not addressing that question. That's a question that we keep picking at and picking at. And what are the kind of things that people have come up with trying to answer that question? We got purgatory now. We got holding places. We got stages of heaven. We come up with all kinds of stuff because we're trying to figure out what was going on when Jesus was liberating people or what happened to the Old Testament saints. Were they in a holding place or whatever? Those are not the questions that Peter's trying to answer. He's saying he was put to death in the flesh and he was risen by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, if that's what he's saying, then we don't have to try to, where does Jesus' spirit go? Not what he's asking, okay? So we can take that off the block. In 19, he says, Jesus went in the power of the Holy Spirit and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. 
Now here's where some homework helps. When you look up spirits, when you look up spirits, spirits are almost exclusively used of uh, demonic powers, demons, fallen angels, evil spirits. Almost all the time. So when something's used like that over and over and over, you have to have evidence to change it and use it a different way. If you don't have evidence to change it and use it a different way, just look at it, use it the way it's always used. Spirits typically, almost exclusively, refers to demonic powers. So what can that possibly mean? That Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. What prison? Well, there again, prison is always used of a physical prison, like when Paul was thrown in prison, when John was in prison, and Acts when they're thrown in prison. It's a physical prison that humans are kept in. Or if it's ever used in a spiritual sense, it's chains or bonds or an imprisonment, a captivity that speaks of where demons are or where Satan is, or where Satan will be, depending on your view of the millennium, when you're reading Revelation and Satan is bound up. So anytime prison is used spiritually, in a spiritual sense, it's for evil spirits. When spirits is used, it's used of evil spirits. So you're starting to go, I think we're a little bit off when we're talking about Old Testament saints in Noah's day or something. But it's weird. It's weird, right? We shouldn't let weirdness, oh, that's too weird. Well, let's just look at what it says, and then let's figure it out, right? Jesus proclaimed to the spirits in prison, if this is evil spirits, and they're imprisoned, we're asking ourselves, why are these spirits imprisoned, and what is he proclaiming to them? Another clue that we get is in verse 19, it says, in which he went, it's hard when you're just looking at the English, but it makes sense. He went, you see that again in verse 22, who has gone into heaven. It's the same word. And when you're reading through the New Testament, that word often speaks of Christ's ascension. When Jesus ascended. So he died, was buried, came back to life. When he came back to life, he still stuck around. Remember? He stuck around for over a month, talking to the disciples, teaching people. You remember that? And then he ascended. So, it's the same word if it's pointing to the same thing. When it says that Jesus went, it's the same as verse 22. He's talking about Jesus' ascension. Not this in-between time. What, what, where was he when he was in the tomb? Oh, his spirit went somewhere. No, 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 no. He was risen by the Holy Spirit, capital S. And then he went, he ascended, same verse as 22, gone into heaven. And from there he proclaimed something. From there he speaks something he doesn't preach a gospel as a gospel of opportunity come and be saved he speaks the gospel as a gospel of victory that this is done that this is finished that this has been accomplished what would he be saying to evil spirits you've been defeated you're done your plan is over i took you out i'm on top you are subjected you are underneath me you can only do what my leash allows you to do i am over you I have all authority, and I'm giving that authority to my disciples so they can proclaim truth in the world, right? That's consistent with the rest of the Bible, and it's consistent so far with what he's saying in this passage. Now, it's starting to feel like we're losing the trail back there, right? And we're kind of lost in the woods. I'll bring us back, okay? 
We got a breadcrumb trail. It was going to bring us back, okay? But we're just trying to figure out what these different pieces mean and how they fit together, and then we'll see the relevance, which is marvelous, guys. It's marvelous, and that's my problem with the other views. Oh, he went and he preached to Old Testament saints. Wow, that really helps me with persecution. That's great. If I was, uh, if I was persecuted in Noah's day, maybe that would help me, right? Oh, he, Jesus descended to hell because he gave people in hell a second chance. Okay, now i got a false gospel. So I can do whatever I want, and if I don't make it in this life, maybe I get a second chance in later life. No, 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 only they got a second chance. Why? Not helpful. Not helpful. But this, I think you'll see, is extremely helpful and precisely fits what Peter's talking about in the rest of the epistle. So, so far, it looks like he's talking to evil spirits. What is this prison that they're in, and why are they in this prison Well, that's what he explains in verse 20. Those spirits formerly did not obey. When? When did they not obey? Well, he tells us when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. So something happened back in the day, in Noah's day, where evil spirits had some breach where they overstepped their bounds. They overstepped the lines that God drew for them, and they disobeyed God's boundaries for them. And so for that reason, they've been in prison. This happened in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Um, I want us to turn to a couple of passages. One of them I want us to actually turn to. The other one we'll throw up on the screen. Okay? And the one that we're actually going to turn to is not far. It's in Second Peter. Okay? Second Peter chapter 2. So we're in 1 Peter. We're just going to turn a couple pages. 2 Peter chapter 2. Verses 4. Starting in verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Does that match? That matches. Evil spirits that disobeyed and have been shackled in a prison of gloomy darkness, you might say, and kept there until judgment. What is this prison? It's where demons are held. It's where demons are chained to. Can they get out and kind of mess with us? Yeah, but on a leash. Like when you put that stake in the ground and attach that leash to your dog, you decide how many feet that dog has, but that dog isn't going to leave the yard with a long steel pole drilled down into the ground, or at least it shouldn't. But they're in prison. They are not allowed to do anything that God doesn't want them to do. And that is clear in Second Peter chapter 2. Now look at verse 5. If they did not spare the ancient world but preserve Noah, what? Noah again! So there's a connection here and it's written by the same author that we're reading. First Peter, Second Peter. Peter's got a thing with Noah and evil spirits in prison. <laughs> the second passage I want to turn to is very similar to Second Peter. Sometimes, if you ever read Jude, and you had just finished reading Second Peter, you're like, "Is this a misprint?" Because Jude sounds exactly like Second Peter. And scholars debate, you know, who got the information first, and maybe Jude copied Peter. Peter copied Jude. Most people think Peter and Jude both got a source from somewhere else. It doesn't really matter. But when you read verse 6 in Jude, Jude is only one chapter long. 
Listen, look at this verse. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, remember I talked about they, they crossed some boundary. They did something that was, was naughty. They, God said, I drew a line and they stepped over that line. They didn't stay within their position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Very similar passage to what we just read. And even though they're weird, they're clear. Weird is different than confusing. And so what the passage is telling us, in clear terms, we go back to 1 Peter chapter 3, and what Peter's putting in there in less clear terms, we can see, actually, that matches. That makes sense. What happened in Noah's day? What happened in Noah's day that was this big breach of authority? It's one of the things that prompted the flood to begin with. And to do that, I don't want to throw it up on the screen. I want you to look at it. We're going to go to Genesis, and we'll be brief. But we need this to understand what's happening here in 1 Peter. So Genesis chapter 6. As soon as you see it, you're going to go, oh boy. Oh boy. This is a tough one. Genesis chapter 6. And then I'll admit that studying 1 Peter has altered my view on Genesis 6. Not completely changed it. Not completely swapped it out. It's not like I was believing heresy before and then now I'm, you know, I'm saved or something. But it's adjusted my view on Genesis chapter 6. Let's get into this. Verse 1. When man began to multiply in the earth, the, the author of Genesis prepping you, prepping you for the flood. Why did God send this huge flood? Well, because things were messed up. How were they messed up? Listen. When man began to multiply in the face of the land, they're supposed to multiply, right? Be fruitful and multiply. It's a command that God gave them. When they began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, in response to that, well, it just sounds like people got married. What's the big deal? There's some big deal there that we're missing because verse 3 says, The Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for his flesh, his day shall be 120 years. I'm not going to you know, have these people living for 900 years anymore. They're so rebellious, they're so messed up, this is not going to happen anymore. Verse 4, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Then the Lord saw the wickedness was great. Their thought were evil continually. And so he promises this great flood to wipe them from the face of the earth. These weren't just marriages. They were marriages that weren't supposed to happen. There was something evil about these marriages. There was something evil about the way in which they were trying to multiply. The way in which they were trying to be fruitful and inhabit the earth. It's not that they were marrying. Marriage is good. It's how they were marrying. It's why they were marrying. It was the result of these marriages that made things worse. Now, we just looked at two passages, three, but two of them specifically mentioned in the days of Noah. These angels breached authority, and because of something that happened back in the days of Noah, they disobeyed back then in Noah's time, they had to be imprisoned for it. Now, when we look at this, we're going, who in the world are the Nephilim? Who are the sons of God? Who are the daughters of man? And there's a lot of debate about this. 
Now, I've always taken this to think that these are human marriages between human men. Maybe they were called sons of God because they're from the line of Seth and they're godly God followers. And the daughters of man are the daughters of Cain and his line and they were intermarrying and they shouldn't have intermarried. The weakness with that is we don't get that don't intermarry thing until later when God calls a people to himself and wants to protect Israel as a line. We don't, we don't have that yet. We're actually real far away from that at this point. So that doesn't help. One of the other popular views on Genesis 6 is that the sons of God are angels. Very popular view. And the reason why I haven't held it up until this week is that it doesn't make sense that an angel can have a baby with a human woman. What does that make that baby? A half angel? Are we going to be in heaven one day and some of them are redeemed or they're like half angel people in, in hell? What is that? We're just getting into this weird, almost mythological stuff that the Bible doesn't seem to really address anywhere else. So the conclusion I've come to, and hopefully it, you can piece it together with me. I think that the sons of God, when addresses sons of God, it is talking about angels. In Job 1, when the sons of God gather before God for a big meeting, Satan is one of them. You know when you read the story of the prodigal son? It starts by saying a father had two sons. At the end of the story, one of those sons is redeemed and celebrating in the party because he's saved. And one of those sons is outside bickering and mad because he's rebellious and he's not saved. But they're still both his sons. So sons of God, if it points to angels, doesn't have to be just the angels that are obedient. It's also the fallen angels. And why would we say sons of God? Sons of God doesn't ever refer to people. It refers to angels throughout the Bible. This is why it's a popular view. Why would he say the sons of God and the daughters of men? It just sounds like he's contrasting humans and something not really human. The problem I've had with that is it doesn't make sense to me that an angel and a human can procreate together. That just doesn't make sense. I've never been able to wrap my head around that until this dawned on me. Every time you read about good angels appearing to humans, they take human form. Right? They're hanging out with, a- with Abram and Sarah and they're eating. You know what I'm talking about? In the Old Testament, angels appear and they look human. They eat like humans. They talk like humans. I don't see that of evil spirits. What do we see when evil spirits want to interact with the human world? What do we see, especially in the New Testament? They take possession of a body. And what do they do with those bodies? They do crazy things. Well, we try to cast this person out, and this person was throwing full-grown men all across the room. We couldn't, we couldn't handle. We put chains on him. We broke the chains. He's crazy. He's like superpower, like on steroids, man. Demonic power, but using a human body. So is it possible that we can split the difference and say things were so bad in Noah's day, things were so messed up in Noah's day, that demons oppressed and used humans with the human's knowledge, humans knowing it, and the women knowing it and saying, if I procreate with this supernaturally empowered person, we're going to have giants for babies. We're going to have babies that are going to be renowned throughout the entire earth. We want to be great. We want to be awesome. 
Now that would sound so far-fetched if we didn't have ancient materials that showed us that pagan religions did this. They invited God, they, they invited various gods to come and inhabit, to come and be with the women so that the women can have special babies. This, this is not made up. So is it possible that when Genesis is being written, people have that in their background. They understand those cults. They understand those kind of things. And that makes sense to them. Is it possible that when Peter is writing to his group in 1 Peter, that they have an understanding of this? Yeah, it is. This book never made it into the Bible, the book of 1 Enoch. But 1 Enoch specifically talks about this interpretation of Genesis 6. That fallen angels had relations with human women, and the result were these Nephilim-renowned giants. And it was wicked. It was wickedness. You go, why did God flood the world? People were just stealing a lot? Were they just like really, really nasty with each other? It was to the point where demons had control. Demons were trying to take over. And they were trying ever since the beginning. Satan showing up in the garden. And so as weird as it sounds, as strange as it sounds, and I, w- I want to be really careful the way I say this because I, I can't document this. I, I, can't, I can't prove it. I don't have a, a reference for this, but I've, I've heard of personal testimonies of women feeling assaulted by spirits in the middle of the night or whatever. And so while demons can't procreate, they can use humans that open themselves up as vessels for empowerment. That's a possible interpretation. I think it's a likely interpretation. The only thing wrong with it is it sounds weird, but it connects to the context. Now we go back to 1 Peter and we're like, okay, if that's what's going on here, how does this make sense? How is this we're going back to the trail now. Okay, we, we, went, we did our little excursion in the forest. What does this have to do with the trail? Listen to what he says. God's patience waited in the days of Noah. You remember the, Noah, the ark wasn't built overnight. It took a while. God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now you see Peter's encouragement coming up again. He's bringing us back to the days of Noah. And he's like, by the way, while we're there, thinking back in the days of Noah, you remember what that was like? You had eight people in the whole rest of the world. Eight people that believed God, and the whole rest of the world didn't. They mocked them. They jeered them. They insulted them. You guys are idiots. Building a boat. There's no such thing as rain. You guys are dumb. You guys are hoping in something that's fanciful. You guys are, you guys are basically you know, morons. You're social outcasts. Why would you do that? And then you have eight people trying to proclaim truth to that entire world that doesn't want to listen. Does that sound familiar to you? Would you be discouraged in that situation? You are in that situation. You feel like you're eight people. And everything you see on the media, everything you see on college campuses today, everything you read in the newspaper, Christians are idiots, Christians are dumb, you're the minority, you're getting pushed out of schools, you're getting pushed out of the public social square, your opinions aren't valid anymore. As soon as you say creator, you're out. Do you feel like that? Do you feel like they did in the days of Noah? Take heart. Because they were the ones that were saved. God had something on the other side of that flood special for them. Basically a new earth. God has that for you. How do we get that? Through baptism. 
He says, baptism corresponds to that flood. Verse 21, baptism corresponds to this, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. If anyone tells you, yeah, baptism, you need to have baptism, a physical baptism in order to be saved. It says it in 1 Peter. Ask them to finish the verse. It's not the physical act of baptism that saves you. That's why he says it's not about a removal of dirt, guys. Taking a bath doesn't save you. What's special about baptism is what it represents. And what does baptism represent? An appeal to God for a good conscience. That's a spiritual reality. You can dunk anyone, but you can't make them appeal to God for a good conscience. That's a prayer of repentance. That's something that has to come from the heart. And so he says, just like when someone goes down in the water and they're surrounded by this flood of judgment, they're dead. They die, but they come up on the other side alive. That's what baptism is about. And that's what Jesus took for you. He took that judgment for you so that you can come on the, out on the other side of that judgment alive like Noah and his family did in the ark. So Peter's point is he's trying to remind them of their salvation. Even though you feel surrounded by persecution, even though you feel surrounded by evil, then the question is, okay, I get that, but what is with the spirits and the evil spirits? Well, what do you think is behind all the agenda, all the pressure that, that presses down on Christians today and then? What is behind all of that? Evil spirits. And if we think for a moment, well, we're just kind of inserting that into First Peter. No. Listen to how the paragraph finishes. Baptism corresponds to this. It saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, verse 22, who has gone into heaven, that's the ascension, and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. They lose. Their plan ever since the days of Noah, their plan to take over, distort humanity, tempt humanity, create cults, Half obedience. He said be fruitful and multiply, so let's really multiply. Let's like get superhumans going. All of those schemes and all of those plans have been wrapped up and thrown in a pit, awaiting a day of judgment. But for those who follow Christ, that day of judgment will be a day of release. It will be, be a day of the hope being realized. So Peter's point through this passage, we get through all of the difficulties and all the weird wordings and all the stuff about evil spirits and everything. At the end of the day, the truth is in verse 22. All of the authorities, all the powers, all of the human authorities, human powers that he talked about in the previous paragraphs, and all of the spiritual powers and spiritual authorities that are behind those human agendas and human institutions. Jesus has authority over all of them. You remember in the previous paragraph that Mark preached on? He says, don't, don't fear anything. Don't be afraid of them. Because Jesus is supreme. He is over all things. Your hope and your confidence needs to be in Jesus Christ. This isn't a common topic, but some of you, maybe some of you have had experiences where you have really felt evil. Maybe evil presence. You had an abusive family member and you saw something in their eyes sometimes and you're like, man, it's not human. And we get glimpses of what's going on behind the veil. Don't be afraid. As powerful as they are, they're on chains. 
because Christ rules. I want to invite the worship team to come up and I'm hoping that this will serve as more than just fun discussion in our growth groups, (laughs) but that we will not miss the trail, to not miss the forest for the trees. Uh, Christ's supreme reign is the ultimate source of encouragement for whatever we're going through at any time, at any point in history, at any place in the world. Amen?